Welcome to The Invisible Hand. I'm your host, Dominic Sherab, and I'm joined by my co-host, Paul Scanlon, to look under the hood of the Australian economy with a view to understanding what's happening and why. Welcome, Paul. Thanks, Dom, and welcome back to all our listeners. This is episode five for the year. Can you believe it? Uh, it's been fun. It's been a roller coaster. <laughs> yeah. And this will be our last regular episode for the year before our very special Christmas edition of The Invisible Hand, which is coming out in the next couple of weeks, where we look at some predictions for 2024. Oh, awesome. Well, until then, we'll be discussing today uh, our usual three segments, what's in the news, where we'll be discussing the latest interest rate hike. In our second segment, The Hand, we'll be turning to some key data points that have recently come out, uh, unemployment, wages growth, and US inflation. And finally, in The Invisible, we dive into some structural factors to help us understand what's happening in China. Sounds exciting. Can't wait. Turning now to what's in the news. At that last RBA board meeting, our new governor, Michelle Bullock, increased interest rates by 0.25%, bringing the RBA cash rate to 4.35%. This is the first rate hike that we've seen since June, uh, but it is the 13th rate hike in this current cycle. The RBA explained that inflation was above the required targets and went to great pains to explain that this was a data-led decision. Paul? How did you view the rate rise? So, yeah, Dom, this rise was not a surprise. Uh, certainly, the governor, Governor Bullock, had signalled her intentions well in advance before this meeting. Uh, in her first speech, she'd indicated that the RBA would be following a data-driven approach and was not comfortable with how high inflation had become or how sticky it had been. And certainly, in the minutes of the last meeting, there was a, a trigger uh, suggested that you know higher and unexpected data would um, move the, the board to make the decision it made and it received some data before this meeting showing that inflation had been higher than where it had expected it to be. And so it followed that the rate rise um, was put down. Paul, you had been predicting two more rate rises this year, which we had been laughing about. Wasn't looking so good actually for your forecasting skills, but actually it seems it might eventuate. Yeah, my, my predictive abilities aren't really the interest of Australian households, but uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> we do have one more meeting by the RBA before the end of the year. That's uh, on the 5th of December, the first Tuesday in December, and the RBA will need to consider what they do at that point. We haven't had a lot of data out. Uh, we are going to talk about some data in our next section, but uh, there isn't a lot of data, new data, which should uh, indicate what the RBA should do. So, I still think that's probably a 50-50 call. The longer-term trend, in my view, is still up, though, and I'm not supported by many other forecasters, I've got to say. I'm a bit out on my own, Um, but I am certainly indicating at least one more rise and more uh, going into next year, and that's not a popular view amongst economists at the moment. And why are you predicting that, Paul? Well, what we've come to know is that we do have an RBA that are going to look at the data to make their decisions mm-hmm. and um, so it's a bit difficult to predict it, it's really going to depend on where a number of data points go over the next six to 12 months uh, but one of those is inflation and um, particularly services inflation is remaining sticky we see that in the numbers yeah. at the moment it's not coming down as fast as expected and so uh, there's you know, some patience by the RBA to wait until these rate rises kick in But that patience is becoming pretty well-worn, as we've seen. uh, The rate rises, as you said, have now occurred 13 times in this cycle, and inflation has not eased at the pace that the RBA would like. 
Um, it's the RBA's job to bring that down and bring it back down into a targeted band. That's their job. Um, and what they and us are going to see over the next 12 months is some numbers come out both in terms of house price growth mm-hmm. uh, and everyone is predicting a shortage of housing uh, which will result in house price growth over the next 12 months, which is going to be a supporting factor for household balance sheets and the feeling of wealth in households, which is a really strong push factor to how much people spend, so household consumption. Mm-hmm. And, of course, household consumption drives up inflation. So, it's a bit of a trap at the moment. Uh, until we see interest rates really have an impact on the value of housing and consumption by Australian households, and the RBA is really likely to be forced into at least uh, leaning towards rate rises and certainly not any rate decreases. Okay then, Mr Scanlon, what's your prediction for Tuesday? Now you're putting me on the spot, Dom. Uh, it is a 50-50 call, but if, you, if you're asking me to make a call for this next one, uh, I think there isn't enough data at the moment to allow the RBA to make a decision either way, so that falls back to a no-change decision next Tuesday but I would be very confident for a rise uh, at the first meeting in 2024. Well, thanks for that gloomy prediction, uh, Mr Scanlon. Moving right along to the hand. And in this segment, we unpack some key data points. We're going to look at unemployment, wages growth, and the US inflation print. Starting off with unemployment, we saw in October that the seasonally adjusted unemployment rate was recorded at 3.7%. That was up. 0.2% and was largely in line with expectations. Paul, what's behind this number? Yes, there's a lot going on with this one. Um, We've certainly come off intergenerationally historically low unemployment rates. Like the the rate of unemployment at the moment is a a crazy low number. Um, It's not the sort of thing you really expect to see in your lifetime. In the last print, the unemployment rate was up. But the number of people employed was also up. There was 55,000 more people in jobs uh, in this last period. And that would normally mean with more people getting jobs and unemployment goes down. But what we had also occurring at the same time is the participation rate was up. So more people were looking for jobs and more people got jobs. It just so happened that there was more people starting to look than got the jobs. So that's why there was both an increase in the participation rate and the unemployment rate. We also saw that hours worked was slightly up, and this is a really key measure to think about what's happening in the future. Uh, If you think about it from an employer point of view, businesses in the economy, if they're struggling to find people to work for them, will often start to move to asking the people who are currently working for them to work more hours. So it's still a strong sign of the domestic economy and particularly domestic employment if employers are asking employees to work more hours it means that it's still a sign that unemployment is sticky and likely to stay low. The RBA is still forecasting unemployment to rise to 3.8% by year end, which is slightly above where we see it now. So we saw in the last episode that job postings were actually down, although still at historic highs. How do we understand less job advertisements as unemployment is going up? Yeah, so a lot of this stuff does look like what happens when uh, a statistical data point bounces around the bottom, it gets a bit confusing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you could certainly read into that that employers are advertising less for jobs because they're concerned about the future, uh, whilst at the same time they have current demand to meet and so they're asking their current employees to work longer hours. Mm. Uh, at the same time, there is a cost of living crisis occurring across the nation. So, that is also uh, 
a pretty consistent theme why more people might be looking for works. So the participation rate is going up. And so we have this confluence of events, more people looking, more people getting jobs, but because the overall labor pool seeking employment is slightly going up and unemployment is still slightly up. But you can read that headline where, which says that unemployment going up in many ways, what it's saying is it hasn't gone up by much and it's gone up from a really super low base. So what we still have is incredibly low unemployment levels, which is a factor that continues to press on inflation. Uh, as we know, when unemployment is low, that puts pressure on wages and what employers have got to pay for the people they can get and keep. Uh, which is another data point pushing the RBA along the path towards higher interest rates. That sounds like a perfect segue to talk about the most recent wages growth data. So for the September quarter, seasonally adjusted wages growth was 1.3%, and for the year, 4%. This is the largest jump in the 26-year history of the series. Paul, talk to me about that. Yeah, so we have here a clear indication of the impact of low unemployment wage price growth. And we understand that, you know, wage price growth or the increase of any price comes when there's demand for a particular product or service and there's not enough supply. So, we've got low supply of labour and high demand for labour. And so, prices have, got, have gone up. Labour is an interesting one though because there are often the, the normal supply demand dynamics at play, but there are often regulated impacts as well. And sometimes there's one-off events that occur. And this particular print was affected by a couple of one-off uh, regulatory events. Mm -hmm. And so, this change was primarily driven by uh, some changes in the private sector, but also a decision by the Fair Work Commission around the aged care sector, mm -hmm. uh, where there was a 15% increase awarded to nurses and aged care workers. Wow. Yeah. And that's affected a particular group of workers who had had uh, not much of an increase for some time. So, it's an example where one-off decisions can, you know, have an outsized impact on the data and so we need to read some of the increase to be that one-off. But what we do know is that that increase of 1.3% for the quarter and 4% for the year is broadly in line with market consensus expectations and certainly where the RBA thought the number would be. And so, although it's a high number, it is in line with what data the RBA was expecting and so it won't be a shock to them at this point pushing decisions either way, it is certainly a data point that they're going to watch going forward and, and a key factor for what's going to be used to decide future rate rises. But from a human perspective, if wages growth was 4%, but inflation was in September 5.6% and now 4.9%, is this wages growth really enough? Yeah, it's a great question, Dom, and this really highlights the challenge that a central bank has yeah. in managing an economy. I mean, in one hand, if they let inflation run away, people will have negative net income growth. And you're right. I mean, inflation in the you know four, high fours and low five percentages is more than the rate of increase in wages we've just seen in that print. So, that means net real wage growth for people is negative. But what we also know is these are point-in-time series and the RBA is focused on reducing inflation and they don't want to contribute to inflation by letting things run away. So, if wages were allowed to continue to increase and increase at more than the inflation rate, then it by itself will become an inflationary force and build in inflation in higher levels in the overall economy. And you could get a runaway inflation um, cycle, which we've talked about before, or a wages inflation cycle, which is you know, increased inflation caused by increased wages. 
another way to think about it is if uh, wages can be held at increasing levels, but the RBA can control the economy to bring down inflation and bring it down to be less than the rate of increase in wages, then they'll be successful. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get interest rates to the right level, which will reduce inflation to below wages growth levels to give people net real increases in wages. And so what the RBA wants to see is the inflation rate reduced from the fives and the high fours down to the target band of two to three. Mm-hmm. And then like to see that that rate stays relatively equal, uh, if not less than the real rate of wage growth for people. And the next big data point we had was US inflation. The US is important, of course, because it's the biggest economy in the world, so obviously impacts us. Um, the US CPI for October came out at 3.2%, which is down from 3.7 in September. And core CPI was in October, down from 4.1% in September. That looks like inflation heading in the right direction in the US. So I'm wondering if they are going to achieve their Goldilocks scenario of a soft landing. What do you think, Paul? Well, the market was certainly very happy with this in the US and around the world. Um, It is inflation trending in the right direction, downwards, down to the target band that the US Fed is seeking. It's certainly the result that the RBO in Australia would like to achieve and, and the rest of the world as well. And so they're ahead of the curve in that regard a bit. Um, so certainly the news from the Fed was that they were very happy about it. Um, it's interesting that this outcome has been achieved though by having rates much higher than Australia. The target interest rate band in the US at the moment is 525 to 5.5%, so significantly above where we are in Australia. Wow. So yes, they're getting the result. Um, but they're getting the result from having rates quite a bit higher than we are. And it's another signal that really we probably need to have our rates a bit higher to get the result that they're achieving. Are there any other factors at play that could be leading to that? Yes, there are. And in the US, we've seen a really coordinated effort between both the Fed and the US government to reducing inflation a much more combined approach than we've managed to achieve in Australia. Hmm. Uh, The Inflation Reduction Act has been a significant spending approach by the US federal government to help bring down inflation in that country. And so it has helped and worked. And that's also a good sign or indication of what is possible when governments and feds work together and perhaps a nice thing for our Australian federal government to think about as well. And what that might mean is that not all the heavy lifting is left to the RBA, who's really only got one main instrument to drive inflation change, and that's the interest rate, the official cash rate, uh, which is largely ineffective on a lot of things. So a combined government and central bank approach is showing to be successful here. Is there an ideological explanation for why the US government would act like this or might act like this and the Australian government wouldn't? Big question, Dom. like that one. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, The answer here really lies in not so much the theory or the ideology of politics, but the practical realities of what's available to politicians at the time and in the context for which they are governing. Um, I mean, it's a little bit beyond our scope here to be diving too much into why the US government has come out with such a big program, but it has. We know it has and it's done that and for lots of different reasons it has, but there is a program there which is the Inflation Reduction Act, which is being successful. We know and can point to a different set of factors in the Australian political context. I mean, certainly there is a 
very big overhang from COVID and COVID stimulus spending, which the current Australian government needs to deal with and to rein back in. Um, that's been a problem for the current government um, being able to put in place some of the spending programs it might otherwise have wanted to. So that's not either side of pro- politics would have had that particular problem right now. Mm-hmm. But it is being supported by you know fantastic receipts from iron ore and mining exports uh, to China and other parts of the world. Uh, really surprise receipts on the government uh, balance sheets at the moment, which are cleaning up a lot of that problem. Um, so it's it's a positive force, which I'm sure governments in Australia would start to think about these as an option. But then the next factor is that there is a serious imbalance in our um, federal government coffers where programs like the NDIS and other spending initiatives are known to be problems coming up in the next few years. And so we're, we're left with this unique set of circumstances where there are spending problems and structural problems within the Australian government budget. Uh, which mean that um, some a little bit their hands are somewhat tied. Uh, so with, without making big policy changes, without making decisions which would really structurally change the underlying nature of the Australian government budget to allow these things to be made, and that's where brave politics comes in. And that's not so much about ideology as you know, what can people do now in a current election cycle with a view to seeking to get re-elected next time? How brave are they going to be? Moving right along to the invisible, which is a segment where we talk about the big economic forces that are pushing outcomes that no one is talking about. And this week, we'll be returning to China, who has not had a very good year economically. For example, retail sales have been weak, up 3%, whereas we've all been used to having double-digit growth. We know that deflation is setting in, manufacturing is contracting, exports falling, the one is dropping versus the dollar, and the dollar value of bank loans is decreasing. So all in all, not a great year for China. Yeah, that's right, Dom. It's certainly been a bumpy year for China and China fights around the world. Uh, It certainly was expected to be a rebound year for the Chinese economy after the reopening from COVID, and that was expected to have inflationary impacts, particularly in relation to their demand for things like steel, metals, oil, coal, and importantly for Australia, iron ore. Uh, But that hasn't really happened. In fact, what we've seen is deflation in setting in in the Chinese economy, which is not good for Australia, and financial weakness generally, and uh, some pretty spectacular business failures in names like China Evergrande and uh, Country Garden. Yeah, Uh, It's just not been a good year. That's then given rise to a lot of concerns about potential contagion impact around the world from a weak China, and in particular, behind the Chinese story is some concern around what China will do with its very large build-up of financial reserves. Will it start to unload some of those things to create some internal stimulus, and what will that start to do if it starts to sell off some of its um, foreign currency holdings, and will it? in particular, affect the US dollar. Lots of measures indicate China has already peaked, and there are many ways to measure this. Back in 2010, China overtook Germany as the largest exporting country. Exports as a percentage of GDP was over 30%, which has now plateaued and is back to mid-20s. The double-digit growth period has also ended, and population growth and fertility rates are at record lows. Indeed, and it's really surprising this isn't more of a story given the amount of data points that are available and some of you just touched on there, Dom. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a discussion point before COVID. Certainly, the building up of structural issues within the Chinese economy 
was, uh, you know, a conscious topic and a conscious conversation for a lot of people. But then COVID hit and it's sort of gone away. And so it looked like COVID masked or um, directed people to be thinking about other things. But uh, now China has come out of that stage. Um, we're now back into needing to think deeply about what are the underlying structural issues and what do they mean for the global economy and the and Australian economy uh, particularly. So how should we be thinking about this, Paul? Well, there's lots of ways to attack this particular problem. And one way which is actually getting a lot of traction lately is this 4D framework that's uh, becoming popular. Yeah. Actually um, was originally proposed by uh, Songwen Zoe Lu in her book, Sovereign Funds, How the Communist Party of China Finances Its Global Ambitions, which is a fantastic book and I'd really encourage all of our readers to grab hold of it if they're interested. But there's lots of people now using this 4D framework and uh, what she proposes is that um, all of those structural issues can be put into four major buckets that we'll start with D, handily, (laughs) for our memory. Uh, One is around demand, the next is around debt, the third is around demographics, and the fourth is around decoupling. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about all of those issues on this podcast series so far, but it's sort of handy pulling these things into one particular framework, which helps us understand how they might all interact together. So the first problem to think about here has been the demand problem, which mm-hmm. you referred to before. And this is largely an issue with the um, reduction in household consumption in China. Mm-hmm. It was running at about 40% of the Chinese economy, um, and put that in context, most developed economies uh, have about 60% of their, what we call GDP, uh, contributed to by uh, domestic consumption. Uh, that got up to, that was very low in China for a long time, but got up to 40%. And it was the internal Chinese consumer that was expected to become the replacement for slowing export growth out of China and really did need to become the internal engine for the continued growth of the Chinese economy. And that really was the story up until 2012. Uh, household consumption in China was growing rapidly. Uh, but in fact, since 2013, uh, we saw a plateau and certainly in the last three to four years, we've seen it begin to shrink as a share of GDP. What's happening, Paul? Why is that happening? Yeah, a couple of reasons. One, uh, we've seen a decline in household income growth. And this is starting to become a political issue in China before Xi Jinping came to power, um, household income growth was really high, mm-hmm. uh, but that has also slowed uh, after plateauing during those same years and has slowed more recently, uh, and that has meant just the Chinese consumer has had less money to spend. The second thing that's happened is what's referred to as household balance sheet deterioration, and what that simply means is that um, people are, f- uh, are less wealthy and feeling less wealthy from an assets and liabilities point of view. And of course, like everywhere in the world, uh, or at least certainly most developed economies around the world, um, households are heavily weighted in their assets towards their investments in property, particularly their own home. And uh, as property prices in China have started to decline, households have started to feel less wealthy and are therefore spending less. Which is a great segue into the second D. You know, if demand problems are the first problem in China, then the second economic challenge is debt. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's certainly a massive debt overhang in the property market particularly, and this is something that the Chinese government would really like a way out of because it is preventing them uh, taking the traditional stimulus approaches that most Western economies like to take. Um, This overhang is is preventing them from uh, overheating the economy anymore, Um, but what we can see is that property is certainly on the decline in China, 
from the data, we observe that urban, the urbanization rate has declined, and that's a demographic challenge, which we'll talk about in a minute, in the third D. But it does mean that there are the, the rate of growth of people moving from regional areas of China into major cities is slowing. Uh, last year, the population growth rate declined for the first time. And on some measures, we now see India is uh, now more populous than China. Uh, and that population decline on its own is not the sole shock factor. The more critical factor in this mix is the lower family formation rate. In China at the moment, people are now putting off forming families, and that has uh, lots of flow on to the prior uh, issue we talked about in demands. If people are putting off forming families, then uh, they put off getting married, which is expensive and requires spending. They're putting off raising kids, which also requires spending. And uh, this is especially the case in big cities where people have lower incomes and are struggling to afford property. So with income growth declining and uh, the property market being more challenging, uh, these things are creating negative confidence in the Chinese consumer, who is certainly now feeling poorer and has higher debt and higher mortgage repayments and declining incomes. And certainly as GDP growth re reduces and uh, another of the Ds that we'll talk about in a moment, decoupling occurs with multinationals now leaving China, there's just a lot less high-paying jobs. It was the influx of Western um, multinationals yeah. uh, into China, which was creating a lot of high-paid jobs in the Chinese economy, and now uh, those jobs are reducing. There's just less incentives to spend, more incentives to save, and so this creates this cycle of demand problems within the Chinese economy. Thanks, Paul. So, so far we covered demand, debt, and demographics, and just to add that the fertility rate has dropped actually to a record low of 1.09, that's births per adults, which means that China is barely reproducing itself. Can you tell us a little bit more, though, about decoupling, which is the last D? Yeah, so this one's an interesting one, and it depends where you sit in the political spectrum as to whether you would call this decoupling or something else. Mm -hmm. Certainly, China doesn't view this as a de decoupling issue. Uh, the, the official stance is that the Chinese government is not seeking to decouple the Chinese economy from the rest of the world, but uh, trade sanctions and a trade war um, and... Uh, changes in the way multinationals are either required or um, encouraged to deal with China uh, is what is behind this issue. So, it could also be, be called de-risking and that yeah. is where you know, it's been a central tenant to, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the US policy which is trying to both deal with inflation in the US economy, which we touched on earlier, uh, as well as protect uh, trade secrets and particularly chip technology and yeah. um, uh, particularly military technology in the US economy. Um, those are things which lots of Western economies have had concerns about whether China respects uh, intellectual property rights and just exactly how much reliance should be placed on you know this emerging global superpower, particularly military superpower, uh, if some of those things were no longer available to Western economies. So, so Western multinationals have been encouraged to de-risk their exposure to China, which simply means having more than just one supplier in most cases. So, if you know you were a major US manufacturer and you for a long time had seen you could reduce your cost base by shipping manufacturing to China, that was useful for some time and certainly uh, from a US risk perspective was considered fine while the China economy was at a particular size. But now it's got big and their military has got big. The US government now wants those people to have China 
plus one at least to have mm-hmm. manufacturing elsewhere and, and certainly the US um, politicos would like that to be back in the US but that's not always the case. But we know, I think we've talked about this before, that actually the China plus one policy has really just led to a middleman. So, other countries picking up um, distribution from China to the US. Exactly right. And that's, you know, often the challenge in, you know, politically intended outcomes. Uh, economics mm. works its way around, you know, not always <laughs> in the way that politicians would like things to happen. But you're right. I mean, um, often US uh, manufacturers in particular have turned to European or South American suppliers, Mexican suppliers, for example, and um, often they're just getting their materials and supplies directly from China. So, it's sort of a, a redirection of trade, as you say. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So, if that policy isn't working, like, it sort of doesn't make sense to continue with it, should something else be done? Well, yes and no is, is kind of the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly a, a tricky situation for Western economies to be dealing with the Chinese economy because it just doesn't operate on the same basis. And there has been some references to how this works as a form of um, financial repression and Mm. lots of economic authors are really diving into what does it mean at this tipping point in the relations between China and the rest of the global economy, which is different than how it has been. Because certainly up to this point, it's been somewhat of a form of repression because China has been a centrally planned economy. The Chinese government has, you know, made decisions and and decided the future direction, which has created growth. But effectively, the way that growth has been achieved is that there has been a really high forced savings rate from the Chinese consumer in the Chinese economy, and that has all been funneled through Chinese-owned state banks. And those uh, banks are obviously controlled by the central government, which has decided where that surplus in savings would be directed in terms of infrastructure projects in particular to grow the economy. Mm-hmm. And so that growing of infrastructure has created a level of demand, which has created a level of growth. Uh, but underlying all that is this surplus of savings, which is really this forced saving rate for the internal Chinese consumer, funneling or fueling the, the Chinese explosion and growth, if you like. And what that can almost be viewed as is a form of financial repression where the savings of one group uh, under receive a return under market and are used to grow their overall economy and are on, on a you know mass basis. That's obviously worked so far. The economy's economy has grown. But on an individual basis, it hasn't been so great for the individual Chinese consumer along the way. You know, that has been successful so far. Uh, you know, Western economies, particularly the US, are now looking to the future and seeing that that actually isn't sustainable. At some point, the Chinese consumer is going to be unhappy. Tap out. Yeah. <laughs> having, <laughs> you know, being the fuel for an economy which is now not directly benefiting them as much as it used to, particularly now that they see they aren't as wealthy as they used to be, they aren't as confident as they used to be, property prices aren't going as up as much as they used to for them, their income is not going up as much as they used to it for them. Mm-hmm. And this dream of, you know, a big China and, um, you know, a job for everyone and a, and a brighter future for everyone is not quite there as much as it used to be. And actually there is this movement, let's call it, I don't know how to pronounce it in in Chinese, but in English they call it the lying flat movement, which effectively means uh, people have tapped out, the youth have tapped out because they see that there is no brighter economic future for them. So, they've just decided to lie flat. So, I guess more 
macro, the bigger macro question is what happens next in the, in the process of decoupling? Yeah, so this is why this is the kind of interesting one of the four Ds. The decoupling or de-risking process is the one looking forward which is going to have the biggest impact on demand, debt and demographics. All yeah. of them are interlinked but this one will certainly drive the other three. And uh, the big question remains, what does China do with its massive foreign exchange reserves? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's certainly some debate on how to measure it, um, uh, but what we know is uh, that uh, it has peaked. It was sitting at around $4 trillion and it's now down to about $3 trillion. And uh, lots of those funds have been used uh, in an investment sense to build things like the Belt and Road Initiative and the Silk Road Initiative, which is been an extension of political power by the Chinese yeah. economy around the world. Um, but where to next for these reserves is really the big question. And what that looks like from a, a Chinese consumer or um, political decision-maker perspective is what does the political appetite in China look like from either moving away from this attempt to create more global influence and spending reserves to prop up the internal economy? Mm-hmm. Do you um, bolster internal demand and um, try and make this internal con- uh, Chinese consumer happier with stimulus? Or do you continue down this path of global influence and investing in nations and nation building and external um, power projection? And the answer to that is really going to be the story of 2024. Uh, when we look forward, there is going to be a choice by the um, Chinese central powers to either um, use those reserves uh, on the one hand to um, help the Chinese consumer, which mm-hmm. would be the way to continue high levels of growth and spending in the Chinese economy, uh, which is challenging to do whilst uh, debt overhangs the property market and the exactly. Chinese consumer. Uh, or secondly, do you um, continue to project international power which is going to escalate tension uh, with the U.S. and global trade wars, which is impacting the way in which um, the U.S. you know returns fire with things like the Inflation Reduction Act, and and then you get this third uh, kind of challenging uh, outcome, which is uh, a prediction that we'll start to lay down here in this podcast is that it's possible for the Chinese government to start to project some really significant uh, international economic power by diversifying and de-risking their financial risk on U.S. assets away from U.S. currency. And by that, I mean, currently, they the Chinese um, economy is the biggest holder of U.S. debt. Yeah. And that, you know, even from a financial point of view, is not particularly sensible for them. They have at risk, you know, they are hugely exposed to the U.S. economy from a U.S. dollar perspective. And so, one way for China to deal with that is to consider uh, changing some of those assets into non-U.S. denominated currency, Mm -hmm. uh, which of course would have a downward impact on the US exchange rate, which would go against all of the attempts by the US government to reduce inflation. That would be quite inflationary. It would be harder for the US to buy more goods. So, at the moment, the Chinese powers have in their hands the control to really derail the inflation reduction process that's incurring in the US economy. Um, But this is where this all becomes circular and we're all in in this together. Uh, What the Chinese government can't do is diversify away its systematic risk. And certainly that looks like China's risk of being exposed to sanctions by the US and the uh, its Western allies, uh, which it's seen happen to you know other nations around the world more recently. And so, you know, there is this tension into 2024 as we're predicting that the Chinese economy will start to diversify away some of its risk 
from US denominated assets, which will be an unhelpful force in terms of the US Fed trying to continue to manage its interest rate policy, but it will need to do so in a way which doesn't destroy the demand for right. its goods from the US economy. And, and that'll be a tension that'll gently play out over the course of the next few years and certainly next year for as long as the interests of those two nations don't diverge. And there is, of course, one powder keg at which they could really diverge around, which is Taiwan. And so, you know, that that's the big issue for next year and the next few years. If those interests really diverge more rapidly, you know, what happens to, you know, China's holdings of, you know, US financial instruments. And so there's this, you know, perpetual concern both in China and the US, which impacts us here in Australia. The perpetual concern is that one day China will just stop buying US treasuries and stop funding US deficits. And, you know, the day it does that will be a bad day for the US economy, but it's also a bad day for the Chinese economy, in effect, because that US economy will stop buying as much of the exports that it's producing and have, you know, that negative impact on the 4Ds that we've just talked about which then flows onto us. So if those two you know, big gorillas have a bit of a falling out, uh, China's going to stop buying our own ore. And that's you know where this, this uh, segment has started talking about is that we, in this domestic Australian economy, have you know a third of our revenue, our entire national revenue uh, in terms of exports, funded by this economy, which is right at a tipping point in terms of relations between itself and its biggest trading partner, who is our military ally. And so, this is why we call this topic <laughs> the invisible. You know, these are the things that are pretty complex and uh, difficult to um, – and interrelated, so difficult to predict exactly which of those things is going to produce the biggest impact on each other and therefore the biggest ripple effect on all those Ds, for example. Uh, but what we do know and we talked about is that slowdown in the Chinese economy has occurred. And so, you know, if we are – to take the economic approach here, we would need to think about all of the potential outcomes that can occur and then give them a probability rating. And, you know, if we're talking about what we think here on this podcast, what is the most likely of those potential outcomes for next year is that, you know, China would start to diversify its US holdings away, which will make it more difficult for the US economy to get its inflation problem under control, but it will do so slowly because yeah. it's unable to uh, move too quickly in a way which is going to uh, undermine its efforts to address these 4D problems. I feel like we could pull on any thread of that discussion and a whole book would fall out. Yeah. <laughs> um, so much food for thought and definitely areas that we'll revisit in future episodes as new data is dropped and developments unfold. Uh, but until then, I wanted to shout out again that next episode will be predictions. Uh, Paul will be predicting what's going to be happening 2024. So if you have anything that you want answered, send them our way and we'll do our best to make a prediction. Until then, stay curious. Stay curious.